On today's episode, we talk with Chef Jessica Brewer about her time as an executive pastry chef, where she started, and what personal life looks like outside the kitchen. No job was too little of a job for anybody. Like, something that I had heard, I mean, this is just something that's said a lot, but when people are like, oh, are we going to pay these people as much as we pay people to flip burgers? or something and it's really condescending because especially even coming from fast food like were we doing like the elbow deep culinary work no not necessarily but it was still honest and difficult work hello everyone and welcome to humanity scudu uh this week our guest is none other than renowned santa fe chef jessica brewer hello jessica hey how are you Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's a, it's been a good evening, and um, been looking forward to this conversation. So, uh, uh, what I want to know first and foremost is, how's your night? My night's been good. I've had an interesting day, such as holiday week for sure, the restaurant industry in general. It's crazy. I think honestly, the biggest issue is trying to drive to work and get there alive because of the way everyone drives. <laughs> Literally. Is that just, do you think it's a Santa Fe thing or like a holiday thing or a combination know. of both? I feel like, I feel like it's a Santa Fe thing. I feel like okay. it's exponentially worse here than anywhere else I've ever been. Like there's always like traffic that's back to back, but I've really never been anywhere where pedestrians will step out in front of a moving vehicle. Oh God. Well, you, you even lived in like Sacramento. Yeah. And, and a few people were less reckless in Sacramento than they are in Santa Fe. <laughs> Yeah, well, in Sacramento, at least, like, well, not at least, but there's a lot of ticketing for jaywalking. They're actually pretty intense about that. Oh, they actually, like, buckle down like, on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I was in high school, I had several friends. Like, we'd dart across the street and then, whoop. You, you got tickets? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> or parents called, depending on how old you were. But they really, they do that. So when I was here and like people would take off in front of the street, I'm like, what, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> you guys like do this here? Technically illegal, but the cops simply don't pursue it. Ever. Yeah. There are <laughs> bigger, more important bridges to burn here than uh, that. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Um, so what I want to begin with this evening is um, I want to know a little bit more about your industry, what it is that you do, what you got going on, because as I understand it, you are a pastry chef. Mm-hmm. And not even just a pastry chef. You're like, what's a step up above the pastry chef? Executive pastry chef is the top That's of it. our category. Above us is like, I don't know. Actually, this could like depend on who you ask. But technically in the hierarchy, there's like pastry is separated from savory. So you can have an executive chef. And they are in charge of one side and executive pastry is in charge of the other. And sometimes those areas of, you know, authority can be separated. Like sometimes you'll get like the cold station will be under pastry. And it just depends on what restaurant you work for and how they decide to split those responsibilities up. Sure. So. Okay. Above me at this point is like as executive pastry chef is the owner of the restaurant. Okay, I was gonna say God, like I'm like you're literally second in command to like the earth, but right, you, you you also have a boss. Yes. Okay. But the restaurant that I'm at now, at least, I still will take a final 
uh, I get like a final okay from the executive chef because okay. some things kind of have to make sense with each other. Like the menus have to interact with each other the right way. It just depends sure. on where you were at. So like yeah, I'll take certainly. it to them and be like, oh, okay, are you okay with sending this as a final thing? And then we bring it to the owner and they give the ultimate okay. So we get complete freedom, but okay. that freedom can't get kind of crazy because they'll bring you right back to where they want you to be. Okay. So what I would want to know is when you, you have this level of freedom, do you ever get like this wild hair and you just decide, I want to make like a wild pastry. I want to make something that like looks insane or tastes insane. Or like, I want to just sort of go off the deep end and just do something nuts. But you know, because of your, your skill level, your talent, your experience, you could do something kind of nuts and get away with it. Oh yeah. So often. <laughs> um, so I was the executive pastry chef at Paloma for several years prior to going to the compound. And Paloma is an upscale Mexican restaurant. So things, not that things were like, there was never any kind of like stranglehold on things particularly, but there was always the upfront idea that things had to remain in like the culture and technique and execution of uh, kind of what you were doing. So if it's upscale Mexican, I would never make creme brulee because that is French and there's no way you can twist or turn that without it being ultimately French because that's what it is. But there's other ways that you can get around that where you could do like crema catalana or natillas or something that was similar to that. So I would okay. get like a wild hair all the time. And <laughs> my boss at that time where he would just say, because he didn't want to degrade me or make me feel bad about what I was doing or where my mind was going. He would just say, I love that idea, but it's not us. And I'd be like, yeah, chef, heard. I understand completely what that means. Sure. So now at the compound, which is where I'm at now, it's all European influenced and American influenced. So like, kind of feel like I can do at that point, it's balls to the wall. Like I could really do anything, right? Like where's the limitation here in this description? So I don't know. I have, you know, given my new menu for the winter to the owner and the chef, and they're totally into it. That includes foie gras ice cream. And that oh, wow. I feel is like kind of crazy compared to the things that I've been known to do and what I've been doing for years. But like, it sounds fucking wild. People will probably <laughs> like it. They'll probably read it and they're like, what the fuck is that? Sure. That sounds ridiculous. I would pay $15 to see what the hell she's trying to do. And yeah. then they'd probably like it. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about some sort of like, I mean, novelty in general, but also um, when you get people who are familiar with a, you know, a restaurant um, or certain menu items, you know, people, creatures of habit, and you walk in someplace and suddenly something a little bit more uh, batshit shows up on the menu and you're kind of like, I need to know. I need to, yeah. you know, like it might not even be good. And I, I'm not going to say that like your food isn't good, but like to, it might not be too. It like, could a, the, not be appealing to a majority of people. The, the masses tastes might not look at this and go, Ooh, this sounds good. But right. suddenly, you know, some people might try it and go, wait a second, just because it doesn't sound good. Doesn't mean it isn't, you, you never know what you might want. So um, do you like experimenting for the sake of like, I hope people like this, or do you sometimes just say, I just want to make something quality be damned. I mean, obviously you want the quality to be good, right. but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, do you ever just want to just like make something just so ridiculous just cause you're like, I, I need to know. Sometimes I do things just to see how people react. Oh, it's and like a social experiment. It's like a huge gamble. So <laughs> 
for example, I did um, Wine and Chili Festival is a massive event in Santa Fe. And um, maybe one day Albuquerque joins in on it. I'm not sure the limitations or why mm. sometimes that isn't all inclusive, but there's like, there's a lot of restaurants in Santa Fe. So I think it'd be like an, a too big of a scale for Wine and Chili to expand. But with that being said, uh, Wine and Chili's Fiesta does like events all week. And I did the guest luncheon and I did it the year prior to. And for this one that I did recently last year, I was experimenting with mixing savory and sweet flavors. And I was like, what about mole? This is like the classic part of Mexico. Mm -hmm. This is not something that would typically be found in a dessert. So how can we make this make sense? And I remember several people and I had conversations about how people would probably not approach mole mixed with dessert in like a way that would be acceptable. And I thought about it and I was like, well, I'll make all 125 people who paid like, I don't know, $200 a ticket mm -hmm. for this event, my own guinea pig. And I did a chocolate mole dessert and they fucking lost it. They loved it. <laughs> and people came up to me through that whole event afterwards and they were like, this is the best dessert I've ever had. Oh my God, these flavors were so strange, but they all worked. And it's like, you know, when you're eating something and it's like weird and you're like, what is that? So you mm -hmm. keep eating it. But like on the flip side, when you like it versus trying to figure out what it is, but you're like, oh, this is something I've never had. And it's something weird. So sometimes it works out. But sometimes it doesn't. I guess we'll sure. see how to be continued with Flambra, honestly. <laughs> have, you, have you ever had uh, something that you tried you were so proud of and it just flopped? Like even and uh, Oh yeah. To know if it flops, I mean, is it something that you taste and you go, Oh, I'm not sure if I'm into this, but other people might still be? Or have you tried something that you thought, oh man, I'm I love this, and then you, you put it in the public and just uh-uh. It's been like where I like it. And I think it's something that's interesting. Not, and it's nothing that's ever been crazy is the thing. The shit okay. that I put out that is like strange and weird gets a lot more attention than the stuff that I think just tastes great. So I had like this chocolate cheesecake I made um, last mm. fall season and it had, it was all gluten-free and it had like a pepita and dried cherry crust and like everything was very juicy and very rich and I had made several of them and they were really pretty too because chocolate is so forgiving when you're decorating it in the cooling process so I felt like the presentation that I had made was really pretty and uh almost no one bought it that's a I bummer what happened because I was like it was delicious it was juicy and yummy it's cheesecake and it didn't grab the attention of other people. I remember coming into work on a Monday that we were closed and I still had like six pieces, which is, you know, a third or yeah, a third of the entire pie. And I was like, really? For three days? Like, because mm -hmm. we can't sell it after that. You can't sell stuff that's longer it's than 48 hours done. old unless right. you're disgusting. So, Unless you're disgusting. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. Well, people. what if you open up yourself up to be a disgusting chef? A disgusting, well, like I what know. if you modify your, your business acumen to... Just being nasty, chef. Just being nasty. I mean, because you know how they do those businesses out in like... Well, I don't some know, places Ohio. do that. Right. Like in Ohio, they're like a, a restaurant that like... Um, that blows you away is in like there's restaurants that have weird... Cert I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking of those places where like they purposefully treat you bad. 
you know, mm-hmm. like they, you go and like, you know, they, you order something and they call you names and then, you know, treat you like shit at your oh, table. like dicks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly Have you ever it. been to there? No, I I've never just, been. I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. I've thought about it too. Cause I thought about how many line cooks would be very successful as servers <laughs> for those positions. Fed up with they're just speaking their mind where it's like, I think you're an idiot. Sure. But sure. sure. Like anyone that orders something medium well, oh, you've like set yourself up. You've already ruined it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. So if, if, if the, the food comes out and you make this delicious looking cheesecake and just nobody's eaten it, do you look at it and you say, is it not presented well enough or was like the flavor profile too specific for tastes or like, what is it that helps you sort of uh, assess what, what to do next time? It can be a combination of things. Usually if something doesn't sell, it's, it's not about the guest at all. It's really about what something you've done. So you can still make something well and it be with good ingredients and done perfectly. And it just won't appeal to the masses. So at that point you look at, okay, so what are these other dessert um, specials or items that we've had that have been successful that have similar notes to this? Mm-hmm. And what are the commonalities and the differences between these things so that the next thing we produce is more fruitful? You know, like for example, if if it's the fact that cheesecake itself is not selling well, no matter how it's prepared or mm. presented, then in that case, we're going to know, okay, it's not the cheesecake. It's, you know, welcome Pluto. It's not, it's, it's not the chocolate or it's not this. It's the fact that it's cheesecake. Okay. And maybe che- cheesecake. the people that are in the area just don't like cheesecake. It's not so in season. It it's not in the trend. It's not yeah. whatever. Okay. Okay. That and makes that's sense. Like a give and take too, because I know like a majority of chefs I know don't like cheesecake because they think that the sour and the sweet is kind of weird. How do you feel about and cheesecake? I love cheesecake. I love cheesecake. I also too. just don't like sweets. So I love the blend of savory and sweet okay. and sour and all of these things matter when you're eating them. So it has sure. to have a balance. So if you don't get the sourness from the cheese like cream cheese, where are you getting it? Because it sure. has to be incorporated. So like are you putting creme fraiche on top of something you're doing or sour cream ice cream or what are you doing here to implement that flavor that's going to give the umami that matters to make something that mm-hmm. you've made different and rememberable? Okay. So you say you don't like sweet. Now, obviously you have to, to a degree, taste your food as you're making it to yeah. make sure it's not like, but you wouldn't go out of your way to eat uh, sweet pastries. You're more into savory. No. Yeah. Okay. I so, love savory pastries, but I will not. I never order dessert. And there's some desserts I like desserts. Like I like ice cream and gelato or sorbet. Depends. Okay. It's um, like so specific, but do you like sort of I like m- muted flavors that are because uh, I'm I'm a chocolate and peanut butter guy and that doesn't mm-hmm. sound like it's up your alley. Are you like doing like what pistachio? No, that's perfect. Salty oh. and sweet. Okay, that's perfect. Good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean I drench like, mine really small amounts. Okay, I, I could eat a whole bowl. It's terrible. I'm trying to like not do that, but you know, I uh, when I was a kid, it was just vanilla ice cream with uh, chocolate syrup on top, covered in honey roasted peanuts, and it was my favorite thing in the planet. Ooh, yeah, yeah. But also, I suppose there's going to be different flavor profiles that complement the whole thing, so it's not exclusively sweet. Now, right, right. So, okay, so sweets are sort of off the table then, uh, mm-hmm. as a whole. I mean, you're. How do you feel about dark chocolate? 
I like dark chocolate. You know, what's funny is that I have been making toffee for the last two hours. And I was thinking about this yeah. and like putting dark chocolate on top. And I thought yes. to myself, well, uh, cause this is for a sweets box that I do every once in a while for holiday mm. seasons. And I just happen mm-hmm. to have one for Christmas and I put dark chocolate on and I was like, oh, what if people don't like this? Or like something like thinking about kids are mostly the people that don't like it. Cause to me, dark chocolate tastes like chocolate and milk sure. chocolate tastes like heavily sweetened chocolate. Very sweet chocolate. Sure. Yeah. Right. I was... It doesn't have like the important notes cause mm-hmm. it's hidden with like all this other shit. So then yeah. I thought about it and I was like, mm, should I put dark chocolate? And then I sprinkled it. I was like, I don't give a fuck. Like, this is real <laughs> chocolate. You're buying a real dessert. These people have paid a lot of money for these boxes too, where I'm like, they're going to want chocolate. And like yeah. thinking about this debate between several types of chocolates. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, there's no debate. It's dark chocolate or whatever. And- right. You know, but it's interesting too, because as a kid, somebody handed me dark chocolate. I wasn't like a stranger. It was one of my teachers, Um, a a teacher in probably like second grade handed us all like pieces of, I think, milk chocolate and dark chocolate. And one thing that they instructed me to do was take this dark chocolate and don't chew it. Don't eat it. Like let Mm -hmm. it sit on your tongue and sort of melt and take the flavor in. And as a kid who loved sweets, I remember doing this and just feeling like, oh, this is the greatest sensation I've had with something in my mouth and from yeah, that point on it activates a lot of different things because there's acids and it's like tannic some of the chocolates depending on where they're from and that's like mm-hmm. chocolate is so fucking complex it's insane like they can sure. be grown in different areas and produced they can be like roasted under certain circumstances and it makes a difference and you can taste all of these things and like some of them activate like saliva production and you're like okay if there's too much of this it's not good for this type of dessert because we're going to want to sure. tone that back. We don't want people drooling on themselves. We just want right. them to drool a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. Just enough to activate just the chocolate. Just a little bit. Chocolate activation. I'm so into that. Um, <clears throat> so you also uh, sort of say that with your with your pastries, and I've, I've seen tons of pictures of it because the way you, you design your food, it doesn't look like, oh, I just want to eat that. Like it looks beautiful. You are making Thank things you. that are magazine worthy. These are, you know, Ansel Adams could come in. I guess he, I think he takes like photographs of like nature, but whatever. He would come yeah. in and look at pictures and take these pictures of your beautiful looking foods. And they look, they look good. They make you feel like, oh, God, I just need to eat this now. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I mean, it, it, food ostensibly is art, you know, yeah. art is crafted because also what you said earlier is you were thinking about making these different chocolates and flavor profiles, but then you're like, no way, dark chocolate. That's what we're doing. And -hmm. it's like that old David Bowie thing. Don't play to the audience. You know, Mm -hmm. what is your art and how do you decide to make it? Right. And that to me, I mean, it sounds really exciting for you as the chef to say, you know, you obviously want to appeal to people, but you want to appeal to people with what you've fully decided they get to enjoy. Yeah, exactly. So like with people buying like a product from a chef specifically, especially when it comes to like what I'm doing, which is like a sweets box where, you know, from watching me what I produce. And if you had special requests and stuff like that, like it could be accommodated or something like that. But in reality, it's like when you give full trust to the artist, no matter who it is, whether that be a painter or a sculptor or a tattoo artist or a hairstylist, when you give them the actual genuine full control of something, you're actually getting the best of your money's work because you're getting that artist's best work put forward and like what they're actually talented at doing rather than like 
being controlling of like, oh, well, I only like this. And I only like this. And I've had right. plenty of people that are like that. Like weddings are the biggest thing with that because <laughs> you have a massive amount of people that have different opinions on everything. And so like I had a wedding in particular that I did a few months ago where it was several hundred pieces of dessert and stuff like that. And some of them are like salty, like blondies have salt in them. And, you know, certain things that the bride and the groom had requested were more salty than they were sweet. And and they were all requested dark chocolate. And so many people, like there were so many left over. And that was like the biggest complaint from people. They're like, oh, well, it was like salty and sweet. And I was like, well, this is cooking. I don't know yeah. what else to say. Like, this is what I do. And like, <laughs> this isn't like a bakery or something like that. I'm an actual pastry chef and we do, right. you know, whatever the, the client wants. So if that's miso caramel brownies, that's going to be salty and sweet. And it's presented exactly as it should be. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. always that like, you know, criticism and stuff like that. And I like struggle with that because I want to be very matter of fact all the time where I'm like, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like those are people that are like, I only eat my burgers medium well and anything less than that's so gross. And I'm like, well, that's not a good idea to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's your prerogative. Exploring but, you know, and this is what it, we offer and you chose right. us. So I don't know what to say. That's what's interesting is if somebody goes to you on purpose and actually I think feels like, hey, we want to request something specialty, but we want to, you know, that's like saying we really need Andy Warhol to make a bunch of prints of like downtown show flyers. Like you're not yeah. getting the artist to do with their art. You're asking them no. to like hand you the cookie cutter. Right. Or some other weird, like it's hard for us to interpret, especially when talking to people that don't work in the industry and they, or they just like, don't in like, they don't enjoy food on the same level that we do. Sure. But it's hard for us to interpret what someone means when they are not sure how to explain themselves. Yeah. So. I can imagine that would be difficult because I mean, uh, when, when you're in a position of like knowledge and authority on something, it's very easy to look at everything and go, Oh, I've got this knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I know what's going on. And most people don't simply put, you know, yeah. I also have a very limited degree of, you know, uh, what I want or what I know that I like, but also I think learning how to communicate that would be my responsibility. Now, yeah. with that, is there anything that you ever feel like you can do to help try to, like, clarify that for people? Because obviously you don't want to make them, like, look or feel dumb. But you yeah, want to, you know, when you're in a place of, like, business especially, you really want to help accommodate to people and educate them is really sort of the, the yeah, goal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What does that look like for you when trying to help sort of, like, provide people with the information, with enough information for them to make what they feel is, like, an informed decision? I think it's really based on like the way that you ask questions. You can recognize pretty quickly if somebody doesn't, not that they don't know what they're talking about. Cause that's like really condescending. It's more that right. they know what they like. They just don't know. And it's intimidating when you're sitting with someone who to you is like a professional sure. being like, am I using the right terms? Am I using this? And it's like a lot of pressure. So it's mm-hmm. our job to be able to recognize some of that of being like the best way to kind of make that work is asking the right questions on our, our side where it's like, what are some things that you do like? What are some flavor profiles that you really don't like and things like that. And then it's our job to come up with something that kind of bridges the gap between them. 
And these people are always spending a decent amount of money. So they're willing to have the conversation where they can over explain themselves. Like really communication is like the most important for this because the worst part is when someone pays several thousand dollars for something and you've given them something that they didn't particularly want, but you also didn't ask the important questions to ensure that the guest had the good time. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Now, is this something that you simply learned through experience or did you have somebody that really helped sort of instill that uh, design into you? Is that something that you sort of just picked up? I think I got it from my own experience, honestly, because you kind of fly in blindly and I haven't had any guests complain about anything, but I have had enough experience where I had felt walking away from it that there's something that I could have tweaked had I asked maybe another question. Sometimes that falls into chocolate. If people don't like dark chocolate, I'm going to assume that this is more appropriate because it's like real chocolate. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes where they're like, oh, this is like too intense for me where I'm like, fuck, I should have asked if they liked milk chocolate or dark chocolate. And we could have made this a better experience for the guest, although they weren't like necessarily complaining. There's always that little area where you could have made it better. And then you learn after doing this hundreds of times, the correct way to approach people and how to ask them in a way that they feel comfortable too, because it's like intimidating. Right. Making them feel comfortable with making their boundaries for what they expect for the money they're spending. And they deserve that. Honestly, yeah. they're paying for it. So it's like, tell me what you want and we'll do it. And that is how everyone should be. Yeah. Let's work together to find out what you want, you know, um, right. because in a service industry, I also know that like, ultimately my taste is irrelevant. My experience yeah. is something I can lend you, but it's not about what I want. It's about what can I do to help you find what you right. want. Right. Wow. Exactly. So uh, it, would you say the majority of your experience really comes from just being a pastry chef or did you have like any jobs when you were younger? Where did you sort of start off with, um, I mean, what was your first job? My first job in the culinary industry was in fast food. Okay. So I kind of have went all the way from fast food all the way to fine dining. And even that was in kind of a condensed period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, I started initially at Domino's as just like a CSR answering phones and stuff, made my way to the line, which is, it is a line, but line, Mm -hmm. you know, cause I'm a chef, (laughs) but sure went through there. And then like, there's so much, competitiveness in fast food that it's like almost comical. And I ended up going from Domino's from when I was 17, I went over to Pizza Hut. Ooh, the enemy. Yeah. And (laughs) actually I will settle the debate now. Pizza Hut has better pizza. They make their pizza more fresh. They make the dough every day. They literally make it there. And at Domino's, they just get it in a truck. Sure. And they have to count all their toppings in a really specific way. And it's just like Pizza Hut's pizzas are just loaded. Anyway, this is not a Pizza Hut debate. Pizza Hut, uh, yeah, there's no debate. I mean, that's that's clear as day. But Pizza Hut also had the red cups. Yeah. And had the arcade, like little cocktail machines and the little salad bar. Yeah. And the red hatch roof. Like, come on. I mean, like. And they serve beer. Actually, (laughs) what are we arguing about here? Right. Yeah. It's great. That's, that's a real family restaurant. That's a know? real family restaururant. Right? <laughs> exactly. Dad family. can have something. I can play exactly. Galaga on a little. So, okay. Yeah. 
so also by by starting with with the sort of fast food restaurant, do you think that having a, a, a spectrum of experience because I, you're executive pastry chef, you are second in command to the boss, right? But yeah. having a, a spectrum of experience, I think, really sort of can help a, uh, you appreciate sort of what the all all of food looks like. You know, you're not just very saying, humbling. I, yeah, that's a, yeah. a good way to put it. You found uh, something to to begin with and worked your way up, but you got to see a lot of it, so you can contrast yeah. and compare. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think? Some of the best things that you sort of learned along the path to pastry chef were that no job was too little of a job for mm -hmm. anybody. Like. Something that I had heard, I mean, this is just something that's said a lot, but when people are like, oh, are we going to pay these people as much as we pay people to flip burgers or something? Right. It's really condescending because yeah. especially even coming from fast food, like were we doing like the elbow deep culinary work? No, not necessarily, but it was still honest and difficult work. Sure. And a lot of it was still handmade and it took a lot of thought and stuff like that. And like, it's still timing and it's still stuff. That's honestly a lot more difficult than the people that are saying this kind of shit are capable right. of doing. Oh, Cause <laughs> how many people per hour are you doing in fast food? And yeah, you know, it's so a lot. I can't even imagine the stress of just like people per minute coming through a restaurant because the whole purpose is to do it quickly. You know? Right. Yeah. I, I would imagine that would be really stressful. Do you feel yeah. that nowadays, um, I mean, obviously every job has its own stresses, but it sounds like you get to work at more of your own pace. And I'm sure yeah. there are plenty of stresses just in general. What, yeah. what are some of the hardest parts about the job for you at this point? Like, what do you, what do you look at and you just say, God, you know, this is still on the daily, just like, uh, difficult. I mean, difficult. at this point now, it's like hard to remain relative and creative there's so many ideas. So the culinary industry is always expanding, just like technology is or the medical field. And that's why they compare a lot of these areas with each other, because they're always just expanding, expanding. There's always a new way to do anything. Mm -hmm. And even leaving the industry for a couple years can bring you all the way back. Like if I were to leave now and let's say I didn't have you know, any kind of popularity in media. And I was just like someone that wasn't known. If I were to leave to like, for example, when I had my son, I left for four years and I still cooked minimally, but I was still out of the executive position. I had to start all the way back as a line cook because that's how quickly the industry expands and how wow. far you get behind. So it's always about watching what peers are doing, watching trends, like what is new, what is different. Life in itself is kind of overwhelming all the time. Mm -hmm. And so you go to work and you're trying to learn things that when you're in a position of executive, you've never seen before and there isn't someone to teach you. So you have sure. to teach yourself and introduce yourself to these other trends and these other things. And half the shit you do won't be relevant to anything. And you have to kind of hit and miss so many times until you find like a groove and it's mm -hmm. a dangerous place to be because you can come up in your career and be very popular. But if you can't maintain that, you just right. tank. Right. And then what do you do? I see. So you're sort of having to keep like a novelty going. You're having to keep a trend resetting. You're having, if you, if you get yeah. complacent, you're just sort of left behind. Mm -hmm. And it sucks okay. too, because like artists in general, 
if you're going through anything in your life, it's really hard to produce. Like yeah. your brain is kind of like clouded with a bunch of other stuff. Or if you have like back to back events where you're like required to come up with all these things and all this art. And so you kind of vomit it all out and then you're kind of left with nothing. Right. And it's hard for you to come back from that where you can produce something that you're proud of and stand behind. And I feel like 80% of the time chefs and probably all artists in general hate what they're putting out. It's so rare that you put something forward and you're like, I stand behind this. I Fully love content. what I've done. <laughs> this is really good. Or the imposter syndrome of people loving something that you've done. And you're like, this is shit. This is the worst right. thing I've ever done. You're <laughs> stupid. I hate this. And I even made jokes myself where I'm like, I can get a pie from Sam's Club and tell people I made it. And they'll be like, oh, Jess, this is so good. Oh. I'm like, no, it's not. I didn't even make this. So it's... It's an endless cycle constantly. Well, I hear this phrase that says perfect is the enemy of good. And Mm -hmm. uh, when when you're creating art, God, like the only obsession to do it exactly right is perfecting it. Is perfecting it. And that I think almost Mm -hmm. outweighs when we've done something that truly is of a good quality and we overthink it to death. Oh, yeah. And that's what ends up sort of like killing momentum and, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. Um, sometimes your, your perseverance, you know, you get squandered because you, you obsess so heavily that you just get discouraged to the point of like, I don't want to do this anymore. Has, yeah. has there come a point, and I'm sure for, you know, most people in like any sort of position of like uh, executive power that you've just looked at everything around you and just thought, God, like, can I still do this? Do I want to still do this? Like you're just in the middle of the shit and it's so heavy you just don't yeah. know where to go. What's that been like for you? Very often, actually. And sometimes sure. I feel, because I have so many friends in the art community that are not in the culinary. I mean, it's all art, but outside of the food application of art that mm-hmm. feel the same exact way. Like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Nico Salazar from Meow Wolf. Oh, yeah. He's, he does Future Fantasy Delight. That's his thing. And he's... okay one of the most incredible artists I've ever met. And I'm fortunate to know him because he's my best friend's brother. So I get mm. to know him on a personal level. And we've cool. had several conversations where it's like, we're having to pump and pump and pump this stuff out where we have like nothing left and we hate everything that we do. And then you get stuck in this cycle of putting something out because you're required to, but you like really hate everything that you're doing. And you don't even know what you want to make. And like, what sure. could be the art that you produce that puts it out there that makes it mm-hmm. feel like you've done something worthwhile. And then you start to get very skeptical and then you move to another industry or you start studying shit that you would have never thought. Like I have a backup degree and a lot of people in the culinary industry do where it's like, eventually we're going to have to leave because sure. we're going to run out of ideas. We're going to yeah. run out of self-esteem. We're going to run out of energy at that point too. So multiple, multiple times, so many times I have thought about how what I'm doing is shit and Mm -hmm. I hate it and I don't belong here and I want to do something else. It's not fulfilling sometimes. Mm -hmm. And your mental headspace plays a lot into that. Whenever you're struggling in your mental health life, in your personal life, it reflects on your work a lot. And some people... Like myself personally, I feel like I do to the public, at least in their response, 
the best work I do is at the worst points of my personal life. Oh, interesting. And that's okay. where the creativity kind of comes out because that's the coping. The art is the coping. And so we put stuff out on a whim out of pure passion and anger and sadness or whatever the feeling is mm-hmm. that we have and people fucking love it. And they're like, Oh, I love this. And you're like, what? You like <laughs> this? I hate my job. I hate myself. <laughs> and they, and it gives you a whole other meaning. And then at the same time, anytime that you go and get inspired by doing something different, whether that be like a, you know, a catering in my industry or a random personal project for someone who's personally paid you or something like that. You can get re-inspired really easily. And it's like this toxic, I feel like being an artist is the worst thing that you could do because <laughs> <laughs> you're in this endless cycle of hating yourself and everything you do. But then at times you're like, I'm so good at what I do. I'm literally the best. And then you're like, Oh, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. <laughs> and it just years pass and you don't even know what's going on. Sure. So when you're, when you're in these moments of just, I mean, like self-deprecating, like wallowed sorrows, like what is it that sort of like helps you even out? How do you, how do you refocus? Like what is it, is it, is it people? Is it making something different? Is it trying something new? Is it stepping away? Like, what is it for you that when those moments crop up, like get you back on track? Um, usually, God, a lot of it has to do with something that I want that I'm doing myself. Mm. Like I'll indulge in a different technique that is unfamiliar to me because I want to explore because I need something to feel fulfilled or I need this itch in myself to kind of complete something I've never done before or look at Mm. something very difficult and being like, this is something I feel like I could never do and I'm going to do it to prove to myself that I can, or at least learn this new task and new technique and at least be a better artist or chef myself. Mm-hmm. Like I had made a pavlava that was super weird with Epizote that the Albuquerque journal had posted uh, photos of and did a story about me for. And for me, that was like, I'm sick of this mundane, boring shit of putting cinnamon on everything that I do because it's like the number one spice for like this region or something. I want to do something that is notably famous to fail at and see how hard I can abuse myself at failing at it until I (laughs) never do it again. Yeah. And then like, then it turns into, I have to make this work. I'm better than this. And it's like, like I said, it's an endless fucking cycle of constantly (laughs) abusing yourself. Right. And I've even had other uh, local bakers and stuff who have told me like, oh, you're such a masochist. Like you'll do all these caterings and all these things and combine. I feel like I'm seeing me put all this work out and I'm like, I'm trying to feel something. <laughs> this is me attacking mm-hmm. myself to right. feel like I'm getting some work done. And the exhaustion makes you feel like you did it. And then the tasks are over and you've done it. But like gunning for the things that are unreasonable and unrecognizable has brought me back every time. And this isn't even so much for the customer. This is really like a personal oh, it's all for us. vendetta for your, against yeah. yourself. Okay. It yeah, is no, that, so rare that chefs do shit for other people. Yeah, that makes we sense. I actually do it for ourselves. This is truly <laughs> the, the truest form of art is as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah that's incredible. 
as chefs, and I feel like I can speak for so many of us too, there's always like one part of the menu, like one item on a menu that is for guests. And we fucking hate it. Oh. It is like <laughs> the one thing that we hate to do, that we have to do for the people. Like for me, it was churros where mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. take it off the menu. Like I could not <laughs> have Paloma because they... Okay. There would be riots in the streets. Literally, oh, sure. No one would come. No one would order desserts. They'd be like, where's the fucking this? Where's this? Where's that? But you hated making them. I hated it. Padishu is so boring. Like, this is not <laughs> culinary school 101, but it's sure. a very basic thing. And people love it. And there's so- <laughs> ways to, like, make it creative, but it's so rare. It doesn't feel, I don't feel good when I make these things. I do feel good that other people love it and that they're happy eating it. But for me, I'm like, I can't get more creative with this. I pipe it in a circle and I'm like, is this different? <laughs> so how do you find <laughs> that balance then with um, you get to make something exciting and then you still have to like make the boring staples? Because obviously uh, when people go to a restaurant, there's going to be expectations of, well, baseline you know, needs are, have to be met, such as churros. Yeah. But then, you know. How much does churros take away from you getting a chance to make your big, like, you know, this is, I hope somebody orders this so I can go crazy. Feel good about myself. Well, that's usually what chefs do with like specials. I mean, we get a big bonus emotionally every time we swap a seasonal menu because we're doing something different. Okay. And so it can be kind of mundane in the culinary industry because you're kind of doing the same thing every day. It gets overly predictable towards the end of the season. You're kind of burning yourself out because you want something new, but chefs that put out a lot of specials are the people that you could see that are kind of struggling with how they feel inside about the art that they're doing because they need to do something different. Sure. So whenever you see restaurants where they release specials often this is usually what that is is that they need something new they need to kind of scratch this itch we saw and it could be something so small we saw a video about somebody frying something like this and we're like this would be so much better if we did it like this and you're like "Hmm." how about i put that to the test in like an actual setting and Mm -hmm. bet the product that I have and the labor that I've put into it and literally bet it and then watch the numbers rise or fall and see if you were right or wrong. Either way, it it feels like we're putting out something much more often than we are. Okay. And that's where we kind of get that scratch. Have you ever like gotten the, the chance to make a chef special and you're like, I cannot wait to do this. And then like one month in, you're like, I cannot believe I suggested this. I hate it. Oh yeah. There's been (laughs) tons of times that I've like convinced my boss that this was a good idea. And I'm like, this is so good. People love this. It's all over the place. Like Bon Appetit, like loves cocoa butter spray bullshit. And then I do it and it's no one gives a shit. And I'm like still trying to defend myself because I'm like, I felt really good about this. And then like no one else liked it. So even with that, like what if you made something that you thought, oh, I can't wait to do this. And then it gets super popular but then a month in, you're like, I never want to make one of these ever again in my life. Oh, yeah. All the, my entire, <laughs> my entire menu last season, like, the, it's like a running joke at Paloma about saying guava tart to me. Oh. Because there was, this was a random ditch dessert that I had made. You know, we came through COVID and that was really difficult. 
And when we reopened fully staffed and so many other restaurants feel the same pain, you kind of had to streamline what you had because of what was available to you, not based on product, but based on staff and sometimes also product. Uh, like some of our main puree companies that exist in the U.S. have failed and they're not around anymore. They were like famous staples that we leaned on for flavor profiles and stuff. They're not there anymore. So then you have to like figure out how to get this stuff way in advance to do it. So you're kind of just like coming up with shit to get it moving. Mm-hmm. And my guava tart was one of those. It was something that was super simple that I had just randomly thought about. I could mass produce it easily for a very low cost. And I literally had that dessert photographed more than anything I have ever made. And I hate it. I hate that (laughs) dessert so much. That's your regret. I, yeah. And I literally hate it. I like felt not creative and it was like an argument to take it off the menu because guests complain and this is who we serve. So we're going to take what they say to heart and obviously into consideration. It's a business. We're not here to play with our food for free. We would like some money back from it. So then to be like, I couldn't even change my menu for like an additional three months past the season because of this fucking tart (laughs) and churros. So two thirds of this. And the other one was tres leches, which is something I had put back on the menu after COVID because so many people wanted it. So for me, I was like, I feel like I work uh, at like any sort of chain store producing the same low quality, cheap dessert because it was not interesting at all. It was just very simple. And those desserts have haunted me forever. And they will. (laughs) I will never make those again. It's a tragedy to hear. But also, it's really funny. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, food has, has haunted you to some degree, but I suppose like oh, any yeah. art, you know, this is kind any of, of those. It, any art. Yeah, we'll do that to yeah. somebody. But um, okay. So despite the fact that you are obviously you, as a pastry chef, you're experienced in, you know, one sort of like specialty line, but you obviously have a, a culinary expertise that allows you to make a variety of things. All across the yeah. board. You could do all kinds of cool stuff any day, anytime, however you wanted. Mm-hmm. But I'd imagine by the time you get home, you're on your way home and you're like, I'm hungry, but I don't want to make something. Oh, never. What so do you many do? people, they're like, Oh, what do you do? You must make, uh, or they would tell my son, they're like, Oh, wow, your mom's a chef. You are so lucky. You must have this or this. And sometimes that's true. I mean, when we cook, Thanksgiving is. Oh, sure. Showdown and things like that. But in reality, no, I don't want any of that crap. (laughs) My fridge is full of every condiment you could ever imagine. Sure. Uh, But when it comes to making a meal, I only buy it fresh that day in a very scaled amount. There's no leftovers. There's no nothing. I just have Mm -hmm. condiments and drinks. That's it. I'm admittingly a fast food addict. (laughs) Do you, do you look at fast food now like with this discerning eye or do you just sort of love the indulgence of like, it's cheap, it's easy, it's hot, it's fresh and delicious? Hopefully All it's of fresh. it. Yeah. It's also just filthy and disgusting. <laughs> like nacho cheese on anything and everything. 
is an option depending on where you're going. Okay. Like the yeah. other day I thought about it and I was like, oh man, I really want some nacho cheese. But it was like in the middle of the afternoon. I was like, I don't want nachos. I don't want this. And I was like, Arby's. Nasty. Oh, okay. Beef and cheddar. <laughs> that sounds delicious. And I didn't stop for that at that point, but I was, I went to Baja Taco in Santa oh. Fe here who puts their green chili cheese fries or like beer battered fries covered in nacho cheese and green chili. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Sold. Dip Amazing. it into some sour cream. That's my favorite thing. That sounds super it's good. It's a meal okay. I eat very often. <laughs> okay, perfect. So you have a, a couple go-tos. And uh, sometimes the indulgence of fast food really is uh, uh, just a, a really good way to go. Do you ever, like, when you take a bite, say Taco Bell. Do you go to Taco Bell? I love Taco Bell is my favorite fast food place. <laughs> so del- It's one Hands of my vices. Down. It's amazing. <laughs> Do you ever just grab, like, a Doritos Locos taco and just think, like, this is the filth that I want? Yes. Every time <laughs> I eat it. Whenever... <laughs> Because I've made so many types of tacos in my lifetime, like from straight classics to like, this takes 24 hours from start to finish type, fine dining, delicious, high quality, organic, blah, 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 tacos. But I get the top, like, I'll get like a party pack from Taco Bell and I can clear almost an entire one alone. Oh, heck yeah. And I'm (laughs) like, this shit is disgusting. Whenever people whine where they're like, oh God, you know, this person just has ground beef and potato tacos at their house with iceberg lettuce. And I'm like, for sure. Sounds amazing. (laughs) It's cheap. It's meant to be its own style of tasty. You know, and so living in New Mexico, that's something that I've heard from a lot of people because they just go, oh, man, you eat Mexican food all the time, right? It's like, well, I mean, it's accessible and it's delicious, but also I love Taco Bell. And they go, why would you get Taco Bell if you live in a city with like thousands of taco options? And it's like, sometimes I want a specific flavor that Taco Bell has. It's not because it's better, but it's because that's what I want. It's in its own little area of something like we could have this style of food, but sometimes we just want the shit of the food. I don't need best of the best for every single meal. It's comforting. It's literally comforting. It's junky. It's good. It's got all the things you like feel awful. Like you have to take a shower. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Sometimes that's a majority of the time. That's what I want. I don't want to feel good about what I eat half the time. I like this stuff and I'm not afraid to be like, I enjoy this. And so many times too, where people ask me, Oh, what do you make for yourself? And no, 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 no. I'm like, nothing. I eat at Taco Bell like three times a week. And so maybe it's like cheers to me. They know. Yeah, absolutely. It's very comforting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Jessica's rolling up. Better pull out the the party pack. Yeah. Just as it's, it's a, I think important for you to have worked in fast food all the way up through where you're at. I think being able to indulge in a variety of foods, including, lower, you know, tier, whatever is just as important because it's still food. It still satisfies a certain specific flavor palette that you crave. And like, I don't ever want to dismiss, you know, like somebody says, Hey, go to the cheesecake factory. Hey, somebody go to Taco Mm -hmm. Bell. They're both great when you're in the mood for whichever one calls. What it is you're looking for. Sometimes you just want junk food. There's times I've argued even that nachos at the gas station, it's nacho cheese and just chips. Or the movie theater where I'm like, this is so nasty. I don't want to know what I'm eating. I just know I'm enjoying (laughs) it. I want greasy buttery popcorn. Is the number one. Oh, they're like hardly even food, and they're incredible. 
Amazing. I don't know what it is, but every day after high school in Sacramento, my little sister and I had to walk past Jack in the Box, which actually it was a dual Jack in the Box and Taco Bell. So it was Oh, Jesus. How do you decide? right next door was an A&W mashed with KFC. Oh, that's incredible. So connected these four gods of the fast food community. Yeah. So we would always stop because Jack in the Box tacos were two for a dollar. So we'd go and get hella tacos. And I was like, what is this mash? And I'd look at it and I'm like, I don't want to know. Or the videos <laughs> where they're like, do you know where that comes from? And I'm like, I literally don't care. It's yep. tasty. Don't I don't know what to say. To I can't me. argue this. It tastes yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm I'm with you. I think sometimes it's it's really, it's about the the whole of it rather than I, I'm only allowed to eat like, the twenty percent of good food out there, you know, there's yeah. food is food, and food, the the yeah. idea of it, like capturing so many different flavors, good, bad, whatever. Sometimes you just want what you want. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that share the mindset in the professional community, like uh, Christina Tosi, who is a world famous pastry chef, has made her career off of being addicted to junk food and snack foods and shit food essentially as the rest of the community would see it. And she's always said that it doesn't have to be fancy to be good. Like it doesn't have to be fussy. It doesn't have to be overthought. It doesn't have to be these things. Sometimes you can combine 20 pounds of butter with some powdered sugar and just deck it out (laughs) in like sprinkles and sauce and things that are awful for you. And it's amazing. And so she does work with uh, the milk bar. If you ever look her up or them up, if you haven't heard of them, all of her stuff is like crazy junk box food, like things smashed together. And they're one of the most famous people for pastries in the country. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Junk box. Yeah. Beautiful. Now, have you ever thought about, I was watching this show. um, Just, I found this yesterday and it was like this challenge where these people had to go and try to create like quote unquote shitty snack food, garbage food, junk food. And the first challenge was like, Hey, go in the kitchen and make some homemade flaming hot Cheetos. And I I thought it was such this yesterday. And I think that's super fascinating. Yeah. My sister told me about this and she, she's super sick right now. And she's like, Oh, Netflix queen right now. (laughs) She's like, Oh, you should, have you heard of this show? And I was like, well, I've seen it on my feed and stuff on Netflix, but I usually watch documentaries. So I always go that way. Sure. And I work with food all day, so I don't typically want to do that. That's like the same as, Anyone who's like, oh, well, let's make dinner and get together. And I'm like, oh, let's do my job for free. That sounds awesome. Right. (laughs) I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I watched the show, just Mm -hmm. that one episode, because I fell asleep after that. And I was watching the way that they were all coming about it from different angles, too, because you have people from all walks of life in that show, too, where you have like food scientists, then you have famous pastry chefs, then you have people that are famous at getting popular for being at home chefs and like, Mm -hmm. how do all these things work? And then how would I do it as a professional? And I was like, what the fuck? Like, (laughs) these are intense. Like, and then I thought, and I was like, how the fuck do you make hot Cheetos? Literally, like, I don't even know. (laughs) I don't even know how I'd approach that where I'm like, okay, polenta makes sense. But does it? 
Right. And everything, when everyone was having their stuff pop back at them and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Like your royal's too high in this. And I'm like, I would not be able to probably successfully pull that off on a show. Yeah. I actually thought it was a really impressive challenge. Yeah. What a neat yeah. idea because we take it for granted because it's so mass produced and yeah. it, you know, you could go to Taco Bell and replicate Taco food, Bell but we can't easily. produce the crap food as professionals. But, so what yeah. are we? How do you make Pringles easily? How do you make? Yeah, it was a really interesting idea. And I kind of like us sort of taking something that is uh, seemingly simple and, you know, having to analyze the genuine complexity of it, you know, they yeah. just have it, a factory that does it for them. But like somebody still had to sort of figure this out in the first place. Right. Where and I want to see the recipes now. I thought about even the yeah. seasoning. I don't even know how to replicate it. I know that there's a lot of niacin involved in hot Cheetos, which gives you that tip of the tongue, spicy, mm. tingling flavor. But there's also a lot of acid and like lime flavor. Mm. And then where does the cheese come from? I sat there <laughs> for a while where I was like, I don't even want to mentally think about this because I admit this is something I could not do. Yeah, I feel like pretty, I could not. Kind of cool to easily. see. No matter how much yeah. you know about food, there's always so much more you simply don't. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really good sort of like sign or maybe even philosophy is to realize that, well, I, would, I don't know if it was uh, Socrates, the more you realize, you know, the more you realize, you know, nothing. Yeah. So, it's the so more, humbling. I'm, also, I hope I attributed that to the right person, but it's one of those guys yeah. in a toga, you know, doing. Yeah, doing something thing. I'm trying to think about it and I'm like, I know what you're <laughs> saying, but it's you know totally saying. true. Yeah, kind of, it's it's good to be humble with that. Um, yeah. Then, so even outside of food, then when you come home and you don't want to cook, you don't want to make food, you don't want to be inundated with something you're already doing all day long. Do you have any sort of go-to hobbies, or do you watch movies, or read books, or play games, or go running? I don't know. Like, what what do you got? What's I definitely never go outside. Or go. <laughs> I've always told people if you see me running. To run the direction I'm running. Something bad is happening. Is happening. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I am too tired to run or exercise like that. Uh, I play a lot of video games. I'm super Excellent. introverted. So a majority of the time I like to spend by myself. I'll even like lie to people that love and respect me to be alone. <laughs> and I, they probably know it. I was going to say they're going to once they listen they to this. They probably if... know it. I know. <laughs> okay, good. And a majority of people will be like, oh, I fucking knew it, Jess. I knew it. Confirming the but whole thing. I just can't. Like, working in a kitchen. So I have ADHD. Very bad, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I have serious sensory issues. I Majority of the time I cook with gloves on. I can't touch stuff. It, like, makes me feel like that limb is dead to me. It sounds really extreme, but it's really how I feel. Mm. almost all the time. And so I'm in this, I can be a very assertive person and most people find me or describe me to be intimidating and I don't see it. Um, I'm in this figure of authority almost all the time, all week at my job. And I work in a very loud environment. There's oven hoods blaring, there's ovens themselves on, there's, you know, things sauteing, things frying, things braising. And plates crashing and a dishwasher turning on. There's people yelling to get shit from the past and like other stuff. And it's so loud and overstimulating that I come home. I live by myself mm -hmm. and I always will because it's just decompressing. Yeah. So I read sometimes when I can like maintain 
the entertainment to do so just because I feel like mm-hmm. I get distracted by things so often or I'll sometimes reread a paragraph like 30 times and gain I'm nothing exactly from it. exactly the same. <laughs> yes. So I love to read, but it's only in like the right setting. But I mean, I'll watch shows even too, but mostly getting lost in playing video games by myself is really how I spend almost all of my downtime or just napping in general, anything quiet. Just low energy. Well, after a busy day of being very extroverted, yeah, it's nice to come home and like do the complete opposite, get that balance going. Right. Yeah. Constantly <clears throat> too. It's, it's so loud. It's too much. And then even sometimes it's so draining. I don't even have energy to play games, which is yep. the least Many amount times. of energy. <laughs> it's like yeah, that's it. You're... selfish, self-indulgent thing you can do is like, yeah. Turn yourself off and live this other life. And sometimes even that's too exhausting. Yeah. You only have enough to exist in wherever you're standing. Mm-hmm. When you play video games, I actually, you know, obviously I, I'm into video games. I had a couple sort of questions for you. Um, do you ever play video games and look at food in video games and either think that looks delicious or I want to make that? Yeah. I do that mostly. I feel like video games don't really like put a lot of focus on food rather than like name what it is. So it kind of limits like the creative ability to recreate something because it's like, you know, like Stardew Valley, you have like salmon dinner and like the ingredients for that are salmon, amaranth and kale. I think Mm -hmm. kale. I know I'm gonna like fuck this up. Stardew Valley people, are like, <laughs> so totally, yeah. it's not it's boycott the podcast but because of I this, can yeah. do whatever you know that entails, but mm-hmm. a lot of that is like anime. Sure, does a lot of that where I look at it and I'm like, what the hell is that? I could recreate <laughs> that because it's it doesn't even have a name. It's just being made in this show, and it looks so complex and so different. You could actually recreate it and there's plenty of youtube people that do that where they look at food that was made in a show or a movie or something and then they create a whole series of them recreating what they think that that means and it's beautiful and delicious it's a fun idea for people to sort of take that like one extra step um zelda breath of the wild came out a couple years back and you can just willy-nilly throw shit into a pot and uh makes hundreds of different types of foods and people started making like their own written illustrated cookbooks that are like here's how to make you know i don't remember the names of half of these things yeah but you know like some sort of like apple truffle you know steak or whatever it might be mm-hmm. and it's it's so fun to see people sort of take it to like this extra sort of next level of you know it doesn't just look good here's how you can actually yeah. make something comparable at home I have thought about making my own YouTube show where I do something like this because Mm -hmm. during COVID, so many people encouraged me to make a show that was based on scientific reasons as to why we do stuff in the culinary industry, especially baking, which I did for a short period of time, not anything complex. Like I just typed novels out Mm -hmm. on Instagram, but it gained a lot of traction to the point that a media local media producer here had said that they would be willing to record me and produce this if it was something I put more effort into. But I don't know how to edit videos. I don't have time for that. At that point, I was married. I had three children altogether through Mm -hmm. marriage and biologically that I had to care for. I didn't have time or silence to have a giant whiteboard where I could discuss scientific theory with people. Yeah. 
Do you think that's something you'd ever pursue in the future if the opportunity came up? Yeah, definitely. Okay. If there's a way I could like make it kind of make sense and be yeah. something I could put forward that was a benefit to other people that I was also proud of, I would definitely do oh, it. That's, yeah, I like I like how that's expressed, a benefit to other people yeah. that you're proud of. I think it's a really great way to describe what you do. Yeah. You know? That's cool. <clears throat> so, Jessica... Uh, I've got five questions for you, and these questions, very important, very, very, very important. The first question being, Jessica, if you got to recommend to me or anybody else a favorite book, and I know we discussed that like books are difficult to read, ADHD makes it so hard to sit there and focus, but if there's one you've made it all the way through and you just, you feel like it's something you want to share with the world, what's that book? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I, honestly, I think one of the most intense books I've ever read that I recommended the most to people was Push by Sapphire, which is the book that Precious is based off of. Okay. Because it's a, um, it's written in a very strange way. It's written as like a diary. And it is focused on a woman who had faced a lot of abuse and trauma in her early years and who at this point was already a mother mm -hmm. through incest and abuse. Oh, wow. And she was very uneducated and you can like read it in the writing style in the beginning part. And you can watch as she becomes educated and experiences things in her life, how it kind of clears itself up and like kind of moves, but it's a very dark and upsetting book. And mm. it was one of the most moving books I ever read where I had to stop a couple times to cry about it. And it was also, have you ever read Carrie by Stephen King? Oh, like the actual Stephen King novel. Uh, yeah. When I was a kid, uh, for some weird reason, it's a, a, I don't know why I read Stephen King. That's when I yes. read it too. I was yeah. like eight. <laughs> yeah. But like I had read almost all of Stephen King and Anne Rice's works by the yes. time I was my son's age. Yeah. Because I was just into reading and my mom was like, oh, you like books? Oh, fucking read all of them. You can yeah. read whatever you want that I have. And there were certain ones. I mean, Stephen King's stuff I've read as an adult. Like mm -hmm. I reread it after watching the second It movie that they oh, did yes. new mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I was so disappointed in it. Sure? I was like, I have to give myself this refresh by reading the work and then Cleanse reading the it a second time as a grown up. Where I'm like, this is fucking filthy. Like his language is so nasty. Oh, it's pretty. And I yeah. never thought about this as a kid because I didn't know what he meant. Right. And right. so Carrie was written in a very strange way too because it bounced between a lot of different um, viewpoints. Part of it would be Carrie herself talking about it. Part of it would be a psychologist. Part of it would be newspaper clippings. And it was like one of the most interesting written books because it just the way that it was written and same with push by Sapphire, where it was okay. written in such a strange way that it was sure. drew you in. Push by Sapphire. Yeah. Okay. It's a very short read too. Okay. Just a short couple hundred pages. Sounds really worthwhile. But it's okay. so brutal and so intense that like I said, you have to stop to like cry because of how intense it is and mm -hmm. it's such a great book okay but it's that sounds very, incredible. very heavy okay yeah. perfect all right so uh excellent recommendation i'm excited to look into that at some point um now second on the list same thing but with a movie 
or a TV show. It could be. Ooh. <laughs> this can also be kind of a big question, but. I know movies and TV shows. It's like I feel like I could lean towards like what something that could be my favorite versus the other, but I'll go on. My favorite movie is Pan's Labyrinth by mm. Guillermo del Toro, who mm-hmm. is my favorite director because he has like such this demented, fantastical view of things. And I feel I relate to it so much because I see things as being both beautiful and demented most of the time. So Pan's Labyrinth is like the best because it's like an adult fairy tale of like, what could we imagine these horrors that could exist in the real world? And it's anything Guillermo del Toro thinks about like I just watched his Pinocchio um have you seen that not yet I saw that it popped up on I think Netflix but yeah I've heard it's great yeah yeah it just just came out like December 9th okay really so super recently now yeah very Uh, recently and it's great because it like challenges all these ideas of like fascism and like war and how that affects children oh great and stuff and When I first watched it, I was concerned as like a parent, not concerned for like what my child was seeing because this is real life shit. And I don't like, I shelter my son from certain things, but I will not shelter him from like the realism of the world. Sure. At least. Good. And so watching it, it was like a very brutal approach to something that was very real that I knew from like a child's eyes, they would see this as something that was real and has happened or could happen, mm-hmm. but it wasn't gory enough that I would like block my kid. It's, it's rated PG. Cause I looked it up. Cause initially there's like a lot of Nazi theme in it. Not mm. essentially from like, we like Nazis were on the Nazi side or something, but like explaining that during that time frame that this is, sure. these countries were Nazi controlled and how some of those beliefs harmed and delegated children. So it's like, I really recommend that you watch it. It was very, it's very Guillermo del Toro too. Cause like the characters are very fantastical and strange. And there's like the air of mystery and darkness and the tones of the visuals are very dark and shadow like, and like, mm-hmm. but it was intense and it was a wonderful, wonderful movie. Sure. No, that sounds fantastic. And, you know, I don't think I ever really sat down and considered the implications of Pinocchio being set in like, Germany in the early 1900s and sort of what that would have been like to just, you know, small German town and, you know, if it took place during the war. And that's actually a really incredible sort of perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I actually paused it like partway through to look up how parents would react because I would have imagined for me when I was watching it and I paused where I was like, what are the Karens saying? Sure. about some of these themes yeah because they're very realistic but they they are parts of our history and instead of kind of dumbing them down or making them more sugar-coated it was presented how it was where children in italy were actually taken from a young age to be trained in these camps to die for their country and they were taught that this was fair and this was just and that this was what their life was accounted to, which when you're telling children that, especially as a parent, this is not what they're meant to do. These are adult right. themes and adult arguments. And we're, you know, some countries during certain parts and even now still to this day, their lives were being put up for what kind right. of shit. So sure. it was really in, insane to see it because there's actually a lot of death in that movie too. And death is a part of life. 
And it's hard conversations to have with your children, but this made it like so approachable in like this very heavy yet lighthearted way that I had to stop to look at what it was rated. Yeah. I was like, oh my, I'm watching it with my son and I'm like, are you okay? Yeah. And he loved it because he was like, this is so crazy. Like, cool. This is what it was like. And I was like, yes, there were children that literally had to do this and they thought that this was the way that life was. And it's crazy. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Actually, that puts a spin on it that makes me more interested even. Um, Yeah. So I'll check that out uh, hopefully this weekend. But yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So now that we've gotten a book and a movie, this one I feel we sort of touched up on, but we get to sort of like, I know it's not truly definitive and that's okay. But uh, if we're going to say you get to pick one food. What's that one food? Tamales. Tamales. Okay. Perfect. But not any tamales. Okay. I mean, from like Guatemalan tamales. Oh, wow. Wrapped in banana leaf. Okay. Filled with not just marinated pork or vegetables and stuff like that, but like big chunks of meat that have the bones still in it with like olives and other stuff. Like banana leaf wrapped tamales are so different from other ones they're so mm-hmm. moist it gives like a taste to the masa that is unrecognizable i am very passionate <laughs> about guatemalan tamales it's my favorite food okay that's the number one huh? Guata- so is yeah. there any place uh, accessible other than traveling to guatemala <laughs> is there any place that you might be able to find something like this that people could at least get like a taste of like even sort of authenticity Tune-Up Cafe here in Santa Fe has Guatemalan tamales that I have tasted that kind of hit the nail on stuff that I'm craving most of the time. But honestly, a majority of the time that I'm craving it around any holiday season, I will find someone locally that's selling them and buy them myself. Okay. I thought you were going to say a a quick trip to Guatemala just because you got got to get the fix. Oh, I wish. I I wish I could. (laughs) Just I on a wish. whim. If only teleportation were a thing. Yeah. All right. Fortunately, so. I know a lot of Guatemalan locals. Oh, here good. Okay. That well, if you ever have any that you can send to Albuquerque, you know, just a little ways away. Oh, I will. Yeah, let me know because I'm interested. <clears throat> and now I think I know the answer to this one based on a handful of conversations we've had, but obviously we're doing this podcast for not me, but for everybody else. <laughs> now, I have to ask this. Because it would be ridiculous if I didn't. But if you had to choose a favorite video game, what's it going to be? My answer is probably going to be a little surprising because it's such an old game Mm -hmm. that almost no one, I I have literally never met a single person that knew what it was besides me, Um, which my stepdad bought me this game. So I showed an interest in video games when I was like five. Mm -hmm. And my mom built me my own PC so that I could play games. And she always brags about how I like broke the Sims and like did a bunch (laughs) of weird shit. And I was always into any sort of like RPG game. So Final Fantasy was one of my first after that, where I played Final Fantasy seven to death. Mm -hmm. And this was in the very early nineties. Like I said, I was like five or six. And then Final Fantasy IX is my favorite Final Fantasy that exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, my favorite game is a game called Kadelka. Kadelka, yep. Was, <laughs> you know it? I do. 
oh my god yeah <laughs> you're literally the first person i've met that knows this game yep that is my favorite game uh i feel like it combines all of the parts of my favorite games like it has the fighting style and the map style that final fantasy has which i'm sure mm-hmm. you can understand it has the tones of resident evil but it also has a little bit of silent hill in it it's very dark it has like an uplifting story to it and like this freedom in the game and like the customizable part of like your characters where it's like so fucking tactical Mm -hmm. and so planned and then also scary as shit like uh (laughs) You've played the game then, right? So here's the thing is I know of the game simply because I've been in the gaming industry for like 25 years, maybe longer at this right. point. But uh, so I've, I've seen it multiple times. I've checked out the box. I've looked at it. I've seen, you know, reviews and, and things in magazines, never actually played it oh. for clarity. But it looks like this might actually be on my list of stuff to check out if I get the yes, chance. Yes, please do. Even, okay, so... Final Fantasy, I feel like uh, even in its earlier ages was really above or like past its time in its little video scenarios and things that it would put out there. Like, so the same with Kadelka, where like cut scenes and stuff were so detailed for that time, mm-hmm. but they were so intense emotionally and scary themed. Everything like Kadelka was so gory compared mm-hmm. to other games put out at that time. Even like, like a very Silent mature Hill, title. when you watch that, like um, when Lisa dies in mm-hmm. Silent Hill, where it was like, for that time, it seemed kind of graphic to have like this woman who was somewhat sexualized, like covered in blood, helpless and like kind of sick and like dragging herself towards you. Like I can still see that scene in my head. And the first time I saw it, I was, what? when the fuck did that come out? Like 1997 or eight? Like uh, about- I was born in 91. So I was playing this when it was brand new and I was like, oh shit. Like as soon as like I exited out the door from Lisa, like dragging her like bloody self out at me where I was like, this is fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Kidelka is like 10 times worse than that. Interesting. Okay. Dark, demonic, and like actually scared you. And you had to go back and fight the shit that was coming for you in these cutscenes. where there's this one specific that's in like, it's when you're swapping over a disc. I remember this because the saddest part about Kadelka mm-hmm. is when I was like 16 or 17, I had just moved to Santa Fe from Sacramento and I had all this shit and I was trading in a bunch of stuff at GameStop and I worked at GameStop. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll get some money back and I'll buy some of this other shit that I wanted. Like um, the DS had just come out when I worked there. So I wanted all of that stuff so i was like i'm just gonna trade in all my old playstation games and kadelka was worth a lot Mm -hmm. like i looked at the checkout and it was like 60 dollars for that game trading value and this was so long ago where almost nothing that you got you got anything back from i think gamestop has been infamous for fucking over people yeah for trade-ins so when i traded in it was worth a shit ton of money and i was like oh that's so crazy and then, like, a year later, when I was like, mm, I just want Kadelka back. And I looked it up, and it's, like, $200 on eBay. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, like, let happens. go this, like, classic 
game that I thought no one knew because I didn't know anyone that played it because my stepdad gave it to me after we played Soul Reaver on PlayStation. And this was something similar in Silent Hill and Resident Evil 2. And I thought this was all kind of in the same boat video mm-hmm. game wise. Mm-hmm. And I still have never gotten it back. I can't, I'm very frugal. I can't justify. You know what another game too that is very lost that I bet that you are familiar with that I meant to ask you about? <laughs> that, that one of my employees brought up because he had a memory. He was like, I used to play this game on PlayStation all the time and I didn't know what it was. And I recognized it the way he described it was Wild Nine. Wild Nine. I, the soundtrack done by a band called Sonic Mayhem. You had yeah. the art done by Doug Tenable, Earthworm Jim, uh, developed by Shiny Holy Entertainment. Holy shit! So you know this. I was like, I, I promise <laughs> I can find someone that knows this. But I was like, I, for me, I was like, I thought I imagined this. Yeah. I think I've got a copy of my shelf literally right back there. So. <laughs> what? Yep. I'll have to tell him. Yeah, but yeah. Kadelka, that's actually my favorite game. It's like, that's like my white buffalo. Mm-hmm. I like traded it in and I never got it back. One of these and days. I'll regret it forever. I will. One of these days I will justify it is worth $200. It honestly is. Sure. It's just like so tactical and so dark and so strange. I, yeah. Yes. This sounds excellent. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm simply familiar with the game existing, seeing the box art and always thought, oh, this looks, you know, creepy, but mm-hmm. never personally tried it. So, okay. Yeah. Now, Here's the final question before we wrap up for the night. If you had the opportunity really to just sort of give advice to somebody who needs it, advice you wish maybe that you had, younger you, uh, you right now, who knows, but what's one piece of advice you would impart upon somebody listening to this? Towards like someone in my industry community, I feel like uh, I would speak mostly to is to really not overthink it mm. to just go with the weird shit mm-hmm. to go with your intuition. And instead of feeling like you don't, nothing you say matters or like the work that you're putting forward is as good as other people, but to just follow what you feel feels sure. right and natural. And, and that's you. It's, it's called your style. And so many artists stunt themselves trying to produce art from the eyes of someone they're trying to impress or from their boss that they actually stunt their own growth. And it also leads to imposter syndrome where you feel like you don't belong anywhere. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I feel like I would be so much further in my career if I didn't shit on myself so much in my younger years. (laughs) Just trust yourself then. Yeah. Believe in yourself. Yeah, that's great. And it's great because I think for your industry, that holds very true. And I think for a lot of people who are just guessing who they are is, you know, it's so easy to feel like you're disappointing somebody. Mm-hmm. Maybe just don't do that. Maybe it's just really is just, you know, you have to to forge your own everything. Yeah, because that feeling never goes away. The no. feeling <laughs> that you suck or you're not producing something that someone gives a shit about, it stays no matter what like i could get published in a magazine once a month and still hate 100 percent of everything i do where i don't believe anybody because of some of the shit that i would just swallow during my younger years of trying to think of what i thought is creative or outstanding or appealing to other people did not fit 
what someone I admired had thought of. But that's the thing is like artists can all be good. We're all good at different things. Mm -hmm. So if you don't take control of like your individuality and your creativity and kind of just like take control of the weird shit you're doing, you're going to go nowhere either way. So yeah, I think that's phenomenal. I think it's great advice and it's so easy to overlook because overthinking really does ruin everything. Yeah. Because you'll never and put out the work that you're thinking about if you continue to think about it. Because you can't get time. perfect. Right. Instead, like swap the idea of like where you hold perfection in importance in oh, your I like work. That. Like you will like instead of we're gonna always strive to make something perfect, and you should always strive for that. But the you know inspiration to get to perfection and that drive to get there and complete that project is passion and to not let that get kind of skewed in that always strive for for perfection but don't stop when you don't think something is perfect because you're never going to work out and honestly other people don't see you or the work that you do the same way that you do right i could put out something that i hate and people think i've done something amazing and i'm like you guys are all lying to me (laughs) and I ignore them and I never do it again. But in reality, people admire you for a lot of different things and you should just be able to at some point feel confidence and acceptance in the way that other people view and admire you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's terrific. I think that's beautiful advice that uh, everybody can use. Yeah. So now, Jessica, <clears throat> where can people find you as far as like, I mean, not like, you know, I'm not going to give the coordinates of your address, but uh, as far as like <laughs> media that you want to give out, like, you know, a restaurant or a page or an Instagram or a Twitter or anything like that, where you feel that you want people to be able to access you. What do you got? So I'm the executive pastry chef at the Compound Restaurant in downtown Santa Fe. You can find us off Canyon Road. We're a very classic, old, known restaurant. You can always come there and find my work there if you want to eat it. But if you don't live locally or you don't want to go out to eat at a super fine dining restaurant, my Instagram handle is all lowercase, Hella Jessica 666 which is always embarrassing to tell people as a professional <laughs> now, but I feel like <laughs> I can't change it now. So many people know me as that and whatever, whoever yeah. hires me knows I am who I am. I mean, it's look fine. at me. <laughs> what would you expect? <laughs> expect anything less than that's on you. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Um, okay. Well, uh, so I want to thank you for being part of this series and for being um, somebody that like, you know, within the past hour and a half, I've learned a tremendous amount about. And so thank you really just for being part of this podcast. And Jessica, yeah. thank you for helping create humanity. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. This is such a good podcast for so many people like I said I listened to a couple of them to kind of get a feel because initially me hearing it I was like what am I supposed to say what am I supposed to do and I was like just listen to it but it's it's an approachable way for everyone to relate to a lot of different walks of life in a non-confrontational way absolutely and that's what I was going for is making it comfortable casual and hopefully something that everybody can listen to and relate to so thank you yeah You've okay. achieved that. So thank you. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And I'm, I'm grateful you're one of my guests and maybe we'll see you again in the future. Yes, I hope so. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. And have a great night.
Take care. Thank you.